0: This podcast is made possible by Workday and U.S. Bank.
1: Hello, this is Robert Bendetti, Chief Financial Officer of Lifecycle Engineering, and you are listening to the CFO Thought Leader Podcast.
0: This is Episode 332. From middle market media, this is CFO Thought Leader, where we speak to finance leaders about driving change within their organizations. On today's show, we feature five different finance leaders and share with you their aha moments. As our listeners know well, we make a point of asking our CFO guests for a moment of strategic insight that they've experienced along the course of their careers. And we ask that they be a finance strategic moment, one they experienced using their unique lines of sight only finance executives have inside their organizations. I have to say, The AHA question has led our interviews down many paths, most of which we never would have expected. We share our first AHA with you after these words from our sponsor. finance can easily make changes to business processes. To learn more about how a finance system from Workday supports mid sized organizations from the ground up, visit us at Workday.com. Workday, built for the future. Ever wonder how the mechanics of offshore arbitrage translate inside the public markets? A while back, CFO Bill Korn, took us on a wild ride inside the fast-growing realm of healthcare medical billing. MTBC is today generating more than $30 million in sales, and just last month issued on NASDAQ $9.2 million in Series A preferred stock. Way back when, Bill's aha moment zeroed in on mtbc's finance organization and how he was going to architect the function to reside in both the united states and pakistan
2: when i when i joined as you said we were 10 million of of revenue Uh, i didn't share the fact that we only had about a dozen employees in the u.s we had a thousand in pakistan we had a dozen in the uh, in the u.s and and i understood implicitly as i was taking the job that i was not going to build the finance team in the U S that you would think that you might need to build in order to do an IPO. I had a team that was in Pakistan and I knew I was going to leverage and grow that team because again, there was such a difference in, uh, in cost. It's, you know, it's hard to say, oh yeah, you know, Bill needs to, uh, to add 10 more people in, 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 back office. That, that would make no sense. So the, you know, the real aha moment was how do I get these people who were bright, but young, not the most experienced, you know, some, some had, uh, I think, when I got there, there were uh, there were two who were chartered accountants, so the equivalent of a uh, of, of a CPA. Uh, three or four uh, people who'd come from big four accounting firms, you know, but they were relatively young. You know, they were they were in their 30s as opposed to in their 50s. So they'd never they'd never really done this. How do I get them world class and ready to be the uh, the finance and accounting team for a public company? And so you know, a lot of that involved uh, bringing people over uh working with me working with deloitte working with uh with counsel on the registration statement i think in the 9 months before the uh the ipo you know probably for seven of those months, one of uh, one of my three top uh financial people was at my side in new jersey so you know we're bringing people from from pakistan over here you know showing them how things are done you know putting them in charge of of, of audits putting them in charge of registration statements Even when we had to get the financials audited for the companies we were buying, you sort of think, oh, you'll just go tell that company CFO, get the books ready for the auditors. But they didn't have a CFO, and they didn't have books in shape. And in fact, in one case, they would bought four of the companies, so there were five subsidiaries with five sets of books that had never been put together. So I said to my guys, this shouldn't be your job, but it is your job. You're going to have to consolidate it. You're going to have to take the entries that aren't gap." and you're going to have to figure out how to get them GAP. And when the auditors ask questions, you're going to have to figure out the answers because if you wait for each company to do it, it's going to take so long that by the time you get one set of audits done, another quarter will have gone by. You're going to have to just keep on repeating this. So uh, I had uh, three folks who who probably got 25 years of of accounting experience in the the course of of nine months of IPO preparation work Uh, and, of course, came out, so much stronger for it. Uh, by now, uh, I've actually got sixty people on my uh, on my team in, uh, in in the finance and accounting uh, organization in uh, in Pakistan. I've got seven chartered accountants, which I think I haven't seen anything publicly, but I think that other than the big four and government agencies, we may have the most chartered accountants in all of Pakistan and And these guys you know they're they're actually you know stepping up and taking responsibility. And, and they've learned, you know, a whole new, you know, perspective on life, which is when there's a problem, I don't try to deflect blame. I don't try to make excuses. I don't worry about what caused it. I work on how do I fix it. And, you know, if you take that approach, all of a sudden, you know, the fact that there's 30 things that need to be dealt with in the day, at the end of the day, you've solved 27 of them. You're a hero. You feel good about it. And, and you're ready the next day to, have to go slay some more dragons.
0: A few years back, Interstate Hotels and Resorts opened a new chapter of growth inside the ever more global arena of hotel management. CFO Carrie McIntyre's aha moment was one that speaks to the critical role finance now plays when it comes to communicating to investors and even board members in this highly diversified global
3: world, we were a public company until 2010, and at this point, I was treasurer in the company. And we were acquired by a joint venture that was owned that is owned 50% by a private equity company based in the United States, their Lodging, and 50% by um, a Chinese hotel company, Jinjiang Hotels, which is publicly traded on the Hong Kong Exchange. So, you know, there was obviously a lot of learning curve with. What they were looking for and and how to report to them. And at a certain point, since that, you know, since they acquired us, we came to the realization probably mid year that what we were reporting to um, the Chinese company was something more of a cash driven analysis and and income. And what they were interpreting it to be was more of a gap um, analysis. And so we realized. Through the process of discussing the results, that what they were, in, what we were saying was different than what they were interpreting it to be. And so it gave us, you know, kind of mid year, which is a point where you had time to affect enough, you know, affect change to, to get back in line with what they were looking for. Um, it, it, it was a realization of what their mindset is and what their culture is and what's important for, for their organization as it goes up the, up their chain to the, you know, to where they're traded. And so we we had time at that point to to stop and say, okay, how do we need to look at our business? How do we look need to look at, you know, opportunities that we see that we've been looking at from more of a, again, a cash, maybe operating income driven perspective and, and incorporate their perspective to make a decision that works for all parties. And so that was an interesting moment, I have to say, but, you know, it all came out, it came out great. And now we're, you know, we understand each other's perspectives and I've moved forward nicely.
0: How do you lay the foundation of a strategic FP&A function? A while back, we spoke to Barack Bengal, CFO of Symphony Talent. And he retraced for us his steps to build a robust financial planning and analysis function. However, when we asked for an aha moment, he stepped back in time to an earlier tour of duty prior to his CFO tenure. Here's Barack.
4: And I think the story I'd like to relate is uh, when I was working at the corporate FP&A function at Yahoo and I was running change management Uh, for, you know, this is a Fortune 100 company and I was focusing on just in the FP&A function. We had more people than I currently have. Um, and we were spread out across 27 countries in four different, um, continents. And, you know, my, my role, uh, from change management was to uh, optimize our performance and be able to, um, really understand what were the kinds of Uh, improvements that need to be done in order to enable Yahoo's management team to make the best decisions they could, right? So they relied on this huge uh, uh, geographically uh, uh, distributed organization in order to bring together all the the information that, that the management team needed to make decisions, and in setting out to do this um, analysis, it was a diagnostic that I ran, and it was approximately, took about four months to do. Um, And the assumption that I had going in, and I think I mentioned this previously, was, you know, you think that there's a lot of problems with uh, the system. And, And Any large organization um, that that has any sort of a financial reporting system is never going to have 100% of the people happy with it. And it's very easy for folks to just report, you know, this bug or that problem with this system or that system. And so being new to the organization, I did the diagnostic, you know, right when I joined, um, I thought that the problem was going to be a system and that I was going to come back and. Uh, have a prioritized list of investments, and the investment was going to be a uh, uh, system focused, and uh, it was going to take a long time to do. Well, it turns out as you as we went through and did the diagnostic, that uh, the actual problem there was a, as is the case with most uh, large organizations, there's no one silver bullet, or there's no one issue that's reducing. Uh, your productivity from where you'd like it to be or from where the management would like it to be. Um, but it turns out that certainly there were issues with, with the system and things that could have been uh, uh, optimized but it turns out there was actually an awful lot of definitional issues that were coming up with different business units were defining things differently. I'll give you just simple examples. What goes into contractors versus what goes into consultants versus what goes into employees? Where do you put interns? Where do you put part-time employees? Literally, that kind of a simple definitional issue was creating problems as to how different folks were, different business units were uh, reporting headcount, which was creating problems when you were trying to look at profitability um, by employee. Uh, if you were, you know, another example would be controllable versus non-controllable costs. So just as simple as talking about what does my P&L look like and is it, um, is it just the cost that I'm controlling or is it a certain, you know, does it include my allocation for engineering time because, you know, there's a lot of engineering resources uh, in certain of the business units. And does it also, by the way, include my allocation of corporate overhead? You know, those are questions that it's very easy to answer. And I found that just by distributing uh, the information and standardizing the practices and the definitions, we were able to address a significant amount of the low-hanging fruit. Um, and so uh, there was a woman who worked for me, uh, her name was Angela, and she just went at this with a passion and found, in fact, she had started this even uh, before I got there and I wasn't expecting, we called it the Finpedia, if you will, the finance encyclopedia. And we aligned ourselves, you know, with the HR team. We aligned our standard reports with those definitions and we made sure that every single one of the business units and the FP&A folks in those different business units knew that these were the definitions and all you had to do was push this button on our standard reporting system and out came the report that met our criteria that was the way that corporate was going to report it and therefore you could now focus not on reconciling your report with fine, with corporate. You could just use that report and spend time coming up with better decision making. So and that didn't take away from my, uh, you know, from the rest of the priorities and from some of the, you know, some of the system based elements. Um, but it, it certainly was an aha moment to me because I, I expected the problem to be Harder than that. I expected it to take significantly longer. And it turns out that oftentimes communication, definitions, alignment, standardization, those are the basic things that even if you're even if you're using the same process, those are the things that make it look like the process is broken. They underlie the fundamental ability of a company to communicate with itself. And and that's why you heard me speaking earlier about the very first things I did were to, uh, to focus on the um, chart of account standardization and historical data mapping so that everything is apples to apples,
5: again, all in the interest of better decision-making.
0: Thought Leader listeners, don't go anywhere. CFO's Michael Peachy of AllConnect. And Andrew Isley of JW Player will be sharing their aha moments after these words from our sponsor. You want smart of year by the Ethisphere Institute. To learn more, visit uspayment.com slash middle market. Aha moment comes from Michael Peachy, CFO of All Connect, who in my mind is one of those leaders who's really reshaping the role of finance leadership by making it more customer centric. Here's Michael.
1: What we realized is that we could be doing more in terms of our consumer engagements if we knew more about the customer. And so uh, we started applying analytics to the customer engagement. When, when the utility hands us a, a call, we're also getting a data feed from the utility with a consumer's home address. And so instantaneously, we're running analytics around that address so that we can understand that customer right as we begin to talk to them. And then our technology platform can build the script for our sales agents so that we're making the relevant offer the first time out to that consumer. So, for instance, if a call happens to come from Athens, Georgia, there's a high probability that that calls a college student. What's important to college students is high-speed Internet. So we want to, in terms of the lead offer, trying to help that college student moving into their new apartment or their home on campus, offer them the highest bandwidth internet speed. Another example of applying analytics would be uh, one of the nice suburbs around Washington, uh, D.C., call it Arlington, Virginia, Um, a, a call from that territory, has uh has very rich service offerings. And when I mean rich, fiber cable is very prevalent up there. There's u verse, there's Verizon FIOS, there's Comcast uh, Xfinity. And so leading with a, a kind of a triple play offering. And that's probably what that consumer is wanting uh, in that call from the Arlington, Virginia area. So and we got these insights as we started to scrub the data and on a post sale. We've been interacting with customers for 14 years, helping them set up their home services. But the aha moment was saying, let's supply data and analytics and help be more efficient with the consumer's time up front by making that relevant offer out of the gate if we've done some some um, work on the demographics around uh, the data that we are getting.
0: Finally, Andrew Isolay, CFO of JW Player, shares an aha moment, which was really that that moment of realization for the venture back video tech firm when it grasped that it was well-positioned to capture uh, a percentage of the burgeoning online video market. Here's Andrew
5: um i i think the interesting one for us was we, when we did our first traditional round of fundraising i mean the the founders of this company i, I had worked with at a previous company a dozen years ago and uh, we had kept in touch you know socially but also i Respected and was a big fan of the business they were creating, but they had always built it on a small initial round of investment and were managing sort of at a break even pace, which again very impressive um, you know in in the startup world uh, and When the decision was made to go out and do a larger uh, raise a larger round of money uh, that 's when I, I came on board and, and joined again the founders that I, I had worked with previously and the The, the big moment there was do we keep building enterprise value uh, on the capital we've raised and sort of manage it so that we never run out of money? So you know, hire conservatively, invest in the product, and grow. And I think the the aha moment there was, you know, there's a there's a huge opportunity here to as, as video is exploding to to gain market share, to build and innovate and roll out additional products, and really take advantage of. Well, yeah, I mean, really, what you want to do is be. Uh, operating uh, in a rapidly growing addressable market uh, where you can grow your own share of that growing market. And I think the aha moment here was we have a product that our customers love, but lots of people don't know we exist. And the aha moment was let's, let's, let's raise a larger round of funding than we might have uh, planned on doing just to kind of keep investing in the product and grow at a, you know, a nice strong pace. And let's, really try and take advantage of this window of opportunity video is getting huge there's other people investing in the space but nobody has kind of the footprint and the install base and the uh... sort of just seasoned uh... vetted product that we have and let's build out a sales and marketing organization let's build our brand let's go up market and work with larger clients who some of whom were already working with us but largely based on the recommendation of an engineer or somebody who said this is the player you should use and they come to our website, download it, build it themselves um, as opposed to proactively going out and seeing who are who who are the leaders in video, who is investing in video, who needs video infrastructure because again like I, like I was saying earlier, we do not want to go out and reinvent the wheel on BI tools and things that other folks have done well, we want to focus on what we do well. A lot of media companies or a lot of websites that are running video, they don't they don't want to invest in the knowledge of how to uh, put a video on every different type of phone and tablet and desktop and different screen resolutions and different streaming bandwidths. They, they want to have somebody else who focuses exclusively on that and worries about all the change and the innovation and, and has a product that works. We we are that product. So the aha moment for us was, you know, let's let's change what we are and from being a just a, a pure engineering culture, a pure engineering and product culture with super loyal customers. Let's let's build that base. Let's get out there and tell people what we're doing. So Uh, In addition to continuing to invest in the engineering and and, and the product side, uh, we built, uh, you know, a a world-class sales and marketing organization, and our business is growing very rapidly. Um, I've never really been at such a point of kind of explosive growth, and it's that, that good fortune of, you know, video is taking off. We have a product people love, but you still have to go out. And tell people about it and sell. And there's different requirements as you go out market and work with an enterprise customer who has a much bigger budget, but they also may have uh, support issues that a smaller company, a uh, smaller software company, you know, that's basically just selling e-commerce, kind of a one size fits all business, uh, doesn't work for everybody. So I think our, our aha moment was, you know, there's a huge opportunity here and, but we have to finance our business. And staff our business, and think about how we market our business differently than we ever have before. And and there's challenges with that in terms of just uh, the change in culture of a business as you start to add a lot of new people, um, you know, and and start to have to put in place more you know structure. I mean, you can operate pretty loosely with a small team because you're all sitting in the same room. Everybody knows what everybody's working on. As you get up to 20, 30, 40, 50, 60 people, um, I mean, you have some different legal requirements about the things you have to do as an employer, but you know, how do you maintain that startup feel and culture that attracted that initial group of super talented people to the team, um, and continue to, to feed that and grow and, uh, you know, take the next step. So for us, that's, that's been a transformational change uh, in our business. And I think it really was an aha moment of the time is right. Let's go for it. There's more risk in that, you know, taking take in uh, new investors, funding the company differently, having more constituents to, uh, you know, to satisfy. There, there's risk associated with that, but it's, you know, it's exciting risk.
0: Well, there you have it, five different finance leaders, five different moments of insight. Again, it's always interesting to put such leaders side by side and make note of the variety of ideas and perspectives that were shared. Thanks for listening.